Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, Homebrew All-Stars, and the forthcoming Simple Homebrewing, coming spring of 2019. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, episode 80. 80? That's right, 80. 80. Wow. On episode 80, we're going to go to the Correctional Department of Corrections because we've screwed up the geography again. Uh, we're going to go into the pub life. Yeah. Uh, talk a couple of great stories that we had. And make a quick stop at the brewery to talk uh, some brewing adventures there in Australia. And then in the lounge, we're still going to be in Australia. We're going to be talking to Chris from Batch Brewing Company uh, there in Sydney, where Denny and I gave a talk. We'll give you some questions. We'll give you some answers. We'll give you a quick tip. And then, of course, we'll leave you with something other than beer in this still uniquely Australian-themed episode of Experimental Brewing. No kangaroos or wombats, though. No. all No kangaroos or wombats harmed in this episode. Maybe a quality. That's right. And, hey, we'll be right back after this message from some of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thanks for sticking around. We're back, and we have a few announcements to start with. And first of all, Drew's going to tell you about the new episode of The Brew Files. Yeah, if you guys didn't listen to it last week, uh, last week was uh, Brew Files number 49, uh, starting off on the right foot. And Denny and I walk you through yeast starters and yeast maintenance and all the stuff that, well, what we learned originally and what we do now and why we think what we do now is even better. And we also want to let you know what's coming up in March because it's getting closer all the time. I'm going to be at the Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Asheville, North Carolina, teaching a class on homebrew experimentation along with Marshall Schott from Brewlosophy. There will be a bunch of other people there besides us, too, so you can, like, really hear some good stuff. Uh, there will be John Palmer, Chris White. Uh, I think Gordon's going to be there, Gordon Strong. So, anyway, uh, remember that uh, if you want to get some beer knowledge and have a great time and a great place doing it, 
Asheville, North Carolina, March 22nd and 23rd. You can go to byobootcamp.com to sign up and uh, put in experimental brewing in the comments when you do, and uh, you'll help the podcast a little bit. And while I'm doing that, Drew's heading to Dallas. Yep, I'll be speaking at the Blue Bonnet Brew Off, uh, America's largest homebrew competition outside of the AHA's Homebrew Nationals. And, you know, be looking to have a good time there in Dallas at the same time that Denny is off in Asheville. So you got two different places in the country that you can come find us. Um, if you're lucky, maybe you can split yourself and see both of us at the same time. Oh, boy, now wouldn't that be cool? I could use that. Don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click on the AHA, brewswag.com, keyword experimental, links on the website. If you hurry, you can be entered into their sweepstakes to get a jaded... Hydra Chiller. And you guys know we love our Jaded Hydra Chillers. So you've got four weeks from the time this episode goes out to get registered with BrewSwag.com. 10% off there, code word experimental. You can also click on the Amazon Brewers Friends or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still... It is still Nowzad. Coming up on the end of the year, but you got another month to help out. This great organization based in Afghanistan that helps our soldiers with the animals they find there, helps them bring them home. Vets and pets, it doesn't get any better than that. And particularly when you can double up on the vets with the fact they're training vets in Afghanistan. So That's right. Yeah, even better, man. Vets, vets, and pets. There we go. And now, of course, we're human beings, and we always make mistakes, because that is the human condition. We're, today's no different. We must make a stop at the Correctional Departments of Corrections. Yeah, you, the last couple of times, man, it's been you who made the mistake, and this time it's me with the mea culpa. Yeah. So we released the episode at midnight on the Pacific time, and <laughs> I woke up in the morning of release day of the yeast episode to find that we had an email correcting us on, well, a geography slip-up that we made. Uh, Andy Anderson was the first of many proud Cincinnatians. Uh, to write in about our mention of Listerman Brewing in the last Brew Files, we talked about Dan and his advice about dried yeast that Denny received and has been using for years. Well, we kind of put Dan's shop in the right state, but way in the wrong city, because we said Cleveland. Hey, at least we got the right state. Right time zone, even. I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, really. So uh, Andy wrote in to say, Listerman Brewing is actually located in the Cincinnati suburb of Norwood, Ohio. Not a big deal. Just thought I'd pass that along as I'm a Cincinnati resident. And this is my local homebrew shop and a great brewery to hang out at. So there you go. Me a couple Cincinnatians. Denny forgot his see Ohio state words. Yeah. You know, as I was saying that, I was thinking to myself, this is not right, but I didn't know. What was, so I, I went with it, and I was wrong once again. It's been known to happen a time or two. Don't let it yeah, happen it again, has. or we're going to fire you. I thought I was wrong once, but I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That means I need a beer. <laughs> yeah, me too, man. Uh, maybe it'll uh, jog my memory. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Pub when we get back. But first, here are a few messages from our sponsors. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. 
With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops, formerly known as YCH Hops, is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is thrilled about the release of their new innovative product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased brew house yield. Visit yakimachief.com to learn more. Welcome back. We've made our way to the Experimental Brewing Pub here at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever the heck you are. And we are having a couple beers. I noticed that Drew's is kind of a, an interesting shade of pink. That's right. I am drinking the Miss Pinky. Miss Pinky Berliner Weiss from Boat Rocker Brewing Company uh, down there in Australia, Melbourne. I took some of this back with me. And so it is now here. It's a lovely 3.4%. And I, I mean, obviously, as I'm sitting here drinking this now, you know, a tart little raspberry beer with about 550 pounds of raspberries in a batch. Um, I keep thinking to myself, this would be really good for summer. But of course, it's not summer here. Oh, but it is in Australia. <laughs> oh, there you go. Close enough. <laughs> it's yeah. It, it's five o'clock somewhere. It's summer somewhere. Really? And how about you, sir? I am back to the bail breaker uh, trend this time. I am having their bottom cutter Imperial IPA. Uh, I just love this beer. Uh, when I first discovered it, I didn't realize it was an Imperial IPA, so I drank way too much. But it's a it is a great beer. 8.2% and 100 IBUs. Now, in spite of those IBUs, I have to admit that uh, there's enough malt in here so that it's not just all about the hops. They're using uh, Citrus, Simcoe, and Equinot. Really nice dry finish because they toss some sugar in there to dry it out. Uh, there's also some Mosaic and Warrior hops, too. But it's kind of like a uh, hop jubilee, man. This, this beer is all about the hops, and they are fresh, and they are delicious. Well, I have to ask, Danny, if you're drinking an 8.2% beer here, uh, are you drinking that in two-ounce samples? Uh, no, I am still using my four-ounce glass, but I'm filling it three times because uh, if it was a bottle, I could recap it and save it, but it's a can, so I guess I'm just forced to drink the whole thing. So let's get into the into the news, and of course, I think the first place that we have to start, since all news is local, we have to start with us. It doesn't get much more local than that, so uh, congrats to you, man, for putting up with me for three years of this stuff. And congrats to you as well. Yeah, it, if you guys didn't realize, we actually kind of whiffed on <laughs> memorializing when we hit three, uh, three years. That was actually during the last episode when we released uh, the Australian uh, episode. That was our third year of podcasting, three years straight. Good 
Lord. And, and really, thanks to all of you out there for listening to us and for telling your friends about the show, for patronizing our sponsors. Uh, obviously, we couldn't do it without you, and we really appreciate all the support we've gotten from you guys. It's what makes this really worthwhile to do. Yeah, and don't forget, uh, we can still uh, deal with you guys telling even more people to go listen to us. But I just, being, me being me, I decided to do some uh, you know, calculations here because I wanted to see just how silly we've been. And I calculated that from the very first episode all the way to last week's Brew Files, we have now put out officially a full seven days worth of recorded content. You could listen to us 24-7 and, not, and never have to repeat the show. But you'd be drooling and have glazed eyes by the time you did that, so I really wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, and for uh, more practical calculations, because who's going to listen to us you know, without sleeping for seven days, uh, that will cover 21.1 you know, work days, your eight-hour work days. So we, we've got you covered for 21.1 days. Uh, wow. Can, so, so you can go to work, not work, and listen to us and uh, waste most of a month. And if you have, uh, you know, just the standard 40-hour work week, we've got you covered for 4.2 work weeks. And if you have the average commute uh, in the United States, which is apparently 28 minutes one way, and you listen to us both ways, we've got you covered for 180 commutes. <laughs> All things that uh, I really didn't need to know. Yeah, I know, but I'm sort of broken in the brain, and I kind of like that sort of thing. So there we go. From us being celebratory to things a little more dulcetory. Whoa. We go to the state of Utah. For If you've never been to Utah, you may not know that Utah has some interesting alcohol laws. And one of which is that anything that is above 3.2% uh, ABW or 4% ABV, which is how we mostly think about things, uh, a beer above that line, it has to be sold in you know the state liquor store, which is controlled by the state. Anything below that can actually be sold in the grocery store. But for some strange reason, Utah, which has been doing a lot of changes recently to sort of modernize their their alcohol laws, uh, they have put into place new restrictions on brewers. And very specifically, this is the crazy pants one. They are now requiring uh, the Utah Department of Alcohol Beverage Control, their ABC, is now requiring that all new beers to be sold in Utah uh, that are going to be in this 3.2 category where they can be sold at retail have to be sent to the state lab to be tested. No independent laboratory stuff. No, you know, hey, this is what my hydrometer tells me. You must send a sample to the state lab and have it tested. And by the way, this doesn't just apply for beers that you're going to sell off the grocery store and convenience store shelves. This applies to all those one-off beers that you have in your brewery tap room. I don't, I don't understand why they're doing this, uh, you know. But I mean, it seems like if they really wanted to verify that those beers were what they're supposed to be in terms of alcohol content, there'd be other ways to do that. They could, uh, you know, pull samples uh, from store shelves, whatever. But you know, this this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But on the other hand, a lot of the other Utah um, liquor laws make very little sense to me either. Well, and the thing is that the Utah Brewers Guild said that they were told that the testing was part of a national standardization movement, right? And that states across the country were asked, asked to implement it. And the great article that's in the Salt Lake Tribune follows up immediately with uh, Paul Gatza from the Brewers Association uh, saying... Um, 
that he knows of no other state that has such a requirement. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, like I said, it it doesn't make any sense, but it's Utah. It's what they do. So I guess you just got to deal with it if you're a brewer in Utah. Yeah, but I mean, to me, I think the real kicker is the fact that uh, there's no independent testing that's allowed to be done, and that it has to be done for every beer, including anything that's one-off. Now, if it's anything that's above 4%, apparently it's exempt because you're not allowed to sell it anyway, and that has to go through the state liquor store. So apparently they don't care at that point. Uh, yeah, the the stronger beers can be sold in restaurants, assuming they have the appropriate license. But uh, if you want to just go out and buy them at retail, it's liquor stores only. Uh, what, what can I say? It's a different place. You tell us, you all wacky. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, I just remember that one of my that one of my most sober and filling nights I ever spent was a night I spent in Salt Lake City, traveling between three different brew pubs, trying all their beers. Um, <laughs> now, and and by the time you got done, you were more sober than when you started, right? It sure as hell felt like it. Now, yeah, right. From the land of uh, bees and Mormons to the land of our ancestors, or at least for some of us, the British, uh, we have news coming that Bass Ale is returning to the United Kingdom. Kind of. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. And one of my favorite beer writers out there is a fellow by the name of Pete Brown. And Pete Brown started his career as a advertising guy working on the Stella Artois brand when it was launched in the UK. And in time since he's become a you know real aficionado of Cascale and you know craft ale he's written a couple of really great books I really highly recommend that you go seek him out but in years past he was always sort of a big ranter you know like he would he would just jump up and down whenever he saw things being done stupid and he's he's kind of gone off from that because he was trying to calm down and, you know I'm perfectly understandable and, but this one, he said, actually forced him to break his no rant rule. And boy, does he deliver a rant. Uh, I love this article, man. The guy's a great writer. He makes some great points, and it was a lot of fun to read. Yeah, he talks about the fact that, you know, I mean, he says, I don't go out of my way to be pissed off by Anheuser-Busch and Bev, but they always seem to be able to trigger me when they announce the launch of a new beer. And... And he just talks about the fact, like, you know, okay, so give us the history of Bass, because Bass I mean, really was one of the UK's most, you know, popular and iconic beers. And he then breaks down, like, the whole thing that, that ABI was doing with this relaunch, so to speak, uh, that it, and breaking down what was wrong with things, like the fact that ABI announced they're bringing Bass Ale uh, back to the UK. It's like, well, Bass Ale never actually left. It's been brewed by license by Marston's, but it's always been here. It just hasn't been supported. Um... And then uh, kind of breaking into some of the things that the, that was wrong in their uh, announcement campaign, like the fact that the bottle had a imported uh, pale ale uh, label on it. He's like, <laughs> wait, hold on. Is this not actually the beer that's being sold here? Because it's being brewed here, so it shouldn't say imported. Are they so lazy that they're, they're, they're including a bottle that isn't actually the bottle that they're going to launch? Um, and then taking it... And why would why would they think that being imported would appeal to people? You know. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, also taking them to task over the fact, like, you know, that, that oh, we're going to launch this to reinvigorate the premium ale category, which is where a lot of craft beer is. And Pete's like, it's doing just fine without you. Um, and then also that they're not even going to brew it in Burton, uh, Burton upon Trent. They're going to brew it in in Lancashire. 
And maybe that's what they mean by imported. Maybe. <laughs> we imported it to you from another county. Um, that's right. But yeah, it's it's just, I mean, he really goes into it, and including the fact, like, during the whole marketing spiel, the only thing they actually mention about the beer is that it's 5.1%. They don't mention anything about the flavor, anything about the hops, anything else, just, oh, it's 5.1%. Yeah, and as he points out, they couldn't even be bothered to find a picture of the beer to put out with the announcement. Yeah, so, and no description of the taste, no nothing. So if you want to read a really sort of great breakdown of some boneheadedness about relaunching something, go read this article. We'll include it at the links in it. And by the way, we both really recommend uh, going out and reading some of Pete Brown's writings because he's definitely great. Definitely so. They're, they're highly entertaining. You'll learn a lot and have a great time doing it. Yep. All right, I think that's enough beer news for now because we've got stuff to do. That's right. Let's finish up these beers and get out of here. Head over to the brewery where we can talk about Australia some more and the triangle test that we did at the Australian National Homebrew Conference. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Autumn has arrived, and so has the opportunity to brew new seasonal styles. Yeast's robust and ruddy private collection offers a fresh pairing of strains for cooler days and palates seeking more body and complexity without compromising approachability. 2782 Staroprog Lager produces exceptional malt-forward German and Bohemian-style lagers. 1581 Belgian Stout will complement the ester-forward strong ales and other specialty styles. And 9097 Old Ale Blend brings English heritage to your glass with a blend of Saccharomyces and a little Britannomyces to emulate traditional British strong ales and barley wines. These strains are available October through December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at whyeastlab.com. Thanks for sticking around. We are over here in the brewery now, and we are going to talk about uh, the beer that was brewed for us by Helen Hewson in Australia that we used for the triangle test that we did there. Just real briefly, uh, what we were trying to do is determine the impact of steeping dark grains separately from a main mash and uh, compare that to dark grains added into the mash for a Schwartz beer brew. And... Uh, Helen Hewson brewed these beers for us, and uh, they were both great beers. And it really was—I mean, it was a really interesting triangle test because it was really definitive in the results, huh? Yeah, and we're going to do a complete write-up of this, so you'll actually be able to see the results. And if you listen, you can hear Helen in the last episode as we're actually doing the triangle test live. But we just wanted to talk a little bit about this because it was really great of her to do this. Uh, you know, we want—we like to be able to serve beer in our talks because it's always much more interesting to have a beer when you have to listen to us than not. 
And Helen very gamely volunteered uh, to do this and, you know, was like, hey, so, you know, what do we want to do? And, of course, we we have the mash capping experiment that's going on right now. We should be in a position to report results on that before too long. Uh, and so Helen Helen decided that she would help us do a variant of it. And instead of doing mash capping, she actually did a side steep. So something like equivalent to what we've talked about in the past of creating your own cinema extract, right? You know, take, you know, crushed up craft uh, malt, steep that in cold water, steep it overnight, and then strain it out. And boom, Bob's your uncle. You've got something to color your beer. And the theory being, okay, you get a smoother a smoother dark color to it, but you also still get a very dark beer. Now, Helen's uh, right up. She, Helen actually works at grain and grape, uh, part-time grain and grape being the large homebrew shop in Melbourne. The, some of the folks who helped bring us down, you, you heard from the grain and grape folks in the last episode as well. And she normally brews, brews in a bag. And this time she actually got to uh, borrow the shop's grandfather and do this. And she brewed two identical batches. Just the only difference was that one of them had all of the dark malts in the mash. And the other one, she did a cold steep on of the just the dark malts to be able to make this colorant. And I don't know. The, I mean, the recipe itself was pretty straightforward. You know, it's just some Pilsner, some Munich, uh, some Cara Aroma, you know, basically to give it, you know, just a little bit of body. And then some Carafa to really give you the color. Simple and single infusion mash because we're lazy. And then some Holotow. Right, that's it. And uh, Helen's write-up is really great. But the, I think the one thing that was interesting, and we talked about it a little bit in the show, is this was done hot packed, uh, no chill, uh, no chill methodology. So no chill starter, or so a no chill logger. And it was just really interesting to see. Now I think the conclusion was she's got a great picture, and you'll see this on the web of the different beers done, you know, with the with the malt actually included in the in the mash which came out darker the steeped version without any of the dark grain in it and then the steeped dark grain solution and then what it looks like when you combine the two together and to me like when you look at them you know the the unsteeped one the one with the grains in the mash is just a, a hair darker in the glasses but you know the real difference came out when i think people tasted them yeah um and the taste was very, very clear to my mind that the steeped one tasted smoother, you know, a little less robust. And the one with the grains in the mash itself actually tasted more like a porter. Yeah. I mean, and it was pretty unanimous. I think that we had like probably, I would say probably like about a six to one ratio of people who correctly identified the difference. Wouldn't mm -hmm. you? Yeah, it, it was it was by far and away uh, very, very clear. And, of course, also what I really liked was it I felt confident going into my choice. <laughs> that never happens. Yeah, and like we said, we're going to put up uh, Helen's write-up of this whole thing on the website so that you can see it because uh, it's, it's really great uh, seeing what her thought process was as she uh, did all this. Uh, Gets down to the 27th of October, right before the conference, and her note is, It's been a hectic couple of days. I find out that the Schwartz beers are to be served during the recording of the podcast at lunchtime, and that I'm to be interviewed about the beer. Crappity crap crap. <laughs> Gotta love it. Seems like Helen had a lot of doubts about her ability to brew these beers. And Helen, if you're listening to this, I gotta say, 
The beers were great, and we really appreciate your effort and the sweat that you put into doing this. Uh, and by the way, a correction before anybody has to correct me, uh, I'm reading back through as, as we were doing this. Helen actually brewed both these beers, brew in a bag and no chill, and then borrowed the uh, the shop's Braumeister to do uh, another batch because she was fascinated by the idea after hearing people talk about them and now wants to figure out how to afford one. And Helen, I'll tell you what, you do a great job with the brew in the bag. I say go and save up those pennies and go get your Braumeister because you are a fantastic brewer. Yep, exactly so. So anyway, that's the backstory on the triangle test we did in Australia. We'll put it up so you can read it for yourself. Uh, Helen, thank you once again for the time and effort in brewing these beers. Uh, it, it made for a great experiment. Yes, and it's, like I said, it's always better to have beer when you're talking about beer. <laughs> That's right. We're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to head over to the lounge and listen to an interview that uh, Drew did with Chris Sidwa from Batch Brewing, where we did our talk when we were there in Sydney. And uh, they make some great beers, and Chris is going to tell you his story. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Explore the history of tart, fruity, and refreshing Goza-style beer with the latest book from Brewer's Publication, Goza, Brewing a Classic German Beer for the Modern Era. Written by award-winning veteran brewer Fal Allen, Goza includes 27 recipes including Sea Quench Sour from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Ruben Brewer's 2017 Great American Beer Festival gold medal winning Goza. Right now, Brewers Publications is giving experimental homebrewing listeners a discount on Goza. Go to BrewersPublications.com and use code EXPERIMENTAL to take 20% off Goza. That's right, you'll save 20% when you use code EXPERIMENTAL at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. We're sitting here in the lounge, lounging around and getting ready to listen to Drew talk to Chris Sidwa of Batch Brewing in Sydney, Australia. Uh, he stuck around after we did our talk there and talked to Chris, and uh, it's, it's a pretty darn interesting story, huh? Yeah, it's kind of, I'm trying to think how best to summarize it. It's a story of how a boy from New Jersey ends up with Bear Stearns ends up overseas to do fancy financial transactions overseas only to be caught up in a financial crash and a turbulent time to recover and then decide that he no longer wants to do that instead wants to open a brewery 
directly underneath the flight path to the Sydney International Airport. <laughs> Sounds like it could be a soap opera, doesn't it? I know, right? And so I know Denny must have had a lot of fun editing this one because we had to keep stopping because planes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's gonna there's gonna be some uh, interesting edits in this. Let me tell you. Yeah, and of course, Chris Chris was telling a really interesting story about how he actually got there to Sydney and how he decided to actually go open up a brewery. And at the time that he opened, which was uh, five years ago, it was basically he was one of the few shows in town and how the scene has grown since then. And also what I really thought was interesting was for a guy who kind of got his start in sort of the cutthroat world of high finance and international finance, how much of his stance about the brewery is about um I'm trying to think how best to put this being responsible. And I mean, responsible from a sense of financial responsibility to, you know, the people who are supplying him uh, ingredients uh, to the people that he's serving to and to the planet, it, you know, to a, a lot of this sort of stuff that really kind of seems surprising coming from a guy who at least at some point in his, in his life described himself as like a hyper capitalist. Um, but really talking a lot about, you know, sort of this transformation that the brewery goes through in order to be able to support local Australian farmers and make sure that everybody's getting paid a living wage, for instance. So also, if you're there in Sydney, I highly recommend uh, stopping by, you know, Batch Brewing Company. While I was there, we ended up having some nice pints of their Voodoo Gold, which is a, sort of a, a big a big IPA-ish type beer with a lot of really interesting Australian ingredients in there. So why don't you grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, of course. Sit back and listen to Drew talking to Chris Sidwa of Batch Brewing in Sydney, Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm, I don't know where I am. I, I seem to be somewhere lost. And if I know I'm not in Kansas anymore. Dear sir, could you help me? Where am I? You're in Merrickville. And where is Merrickville? Uh, it's about... 20, uh, 10 minutes, if the traffic is good, from Sydney, southwest. There, and go ahead and introduce yourself to the My audience. name is Chris Sidwa, and we're sitting in uh, a batch brewing company in the inner west of Sydney. And yeah, we're right under the flight path, uh, right near the port. So nice industrial area for uh, yeah, making good beer. Well, I was going to say, it's... It's somewhat refreshing to come a half a world away and see that fledgling microbreweries are still located in weird little industrial districts. Yeah, the this particular one's fantastic. I mean, uh, I'm an American, but I still started my brewing career in Australia and therefore work in metric. And, you know, we're 300 meters. One way is the, the train. Uh, one way is the, the major bus route. Um in the other directions, uh, it's residential. So we've got this nice little pocket of an industry that's surrounded by residential. So it's the best of both worlds. We, you know, we can make lots of noise, produce lots of beautiful smells that some people think are not nice, and uh, and, and make you know fantastic beer, and uh, and still have access to people who, you know, walk by us to get to the train in the morning for their commute, or you know, just live around the corner and and pop in so it's very much for us it's set out to make a neighborhood brewery and uh and and we've been able to do that here because yeah it's just perfectly situated well i was gonna say i know that we did an event here earlier and you know one of the things that we had to make sure was there was the regulars table and and 
they were respected, not not like, hey, this is a private event. So it was it was very nice to see that. Like, oh no, yeah, there's special things going on, but the regulars still get their due. They do, they do. I mean, they they pay our bills and we we love them, and they're just part of our little community that we've got. So yeah, if they uh, want to freeload and, and get some some cool homebrewing tips, they can have them. Uh, most of them are interested and probably don't really care, but are just interested to hear what other people are talking about because it's, you know, it's part of the culture that they live in. And yeah. Well, and of course, we are also relatively near to Sydney's International Airport. Yes. So, you know, if you find yourself with a layover, Batch Brewing is conveniently located from the airport. It is. It is. It's, uh, I like to say it's about 10 minutes from the airport, but that's a bit of an exaggeration. It's, you know, Sydney traffic sucks, so it's, it's not quite that close. Well, uh, the, the thing I noticed about Sydney is that uh, not a lot of major thoroughfares. Nah. I mean, you've got, the, you've got the, the motorway, and then after that, it's like little streets. It struck me, yeah, I mean, coming from New Jersey um, and living, you know, about, I don't know, like half a mile from three different major highways, um, it struck me that if you want to go north from Sydney, it takes you from the city about 45 minutes to get to a highway. And that just blew my mind. But this town, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an old town and, you know, developed very quickly and infrastructure was an afterthought and we're still paying for it so well not to be too uh northeast american about it but in a lot of ways it reminds me of kind of like boston you know where uh, you know kind of yeah. The, yeah that same thing like yeah this is a really old place and oh we now have cars and let's dig a huge f-ing tunnel and yeah and that's what they're <laughs> doing right now it's it's literally going underneath our building and it's yeah it spreads out and yeah. i drove that tunnel this morning I got lost. Yeah. It happens. So you said, okay, you're, you're a Jersey boy. What exit? Um, 145. There we go. That helps everybody in New Jersey and, and New York. But so how does a Jersey boy end up in Australia, and how does he end up in Australia with a brewery? I um, was working for Bear Stearns in New York City, and... Uh, right around the time that Bear Stearns collapsed and J.P. Morgan took over, uh, my individual business unit was looking to get somebody into this time zone. Uh, they had you know, lots of international opportunity, and you know we're looking at opportunities, and uh, mostly in Korea and, and Japan. And uh, thankfully for me, as a, a white boy with no language skills whatsoever, uh, Australia came first. So office was set up down here and I came across to help build out the operational aspects of you know running this, this business and um, yeah and, and then you know Lehman collapsed and the, and the floor fell out and thankfully we'd made enough of an investment that they couldn't fire me so they had to have somebody here making sure that they they got their return on their investment and that gave me the time to uh, you know, continue to pursue that business and make sure that it worked. So I had a, a lot of free time and I made a lot of homebrew. And uh, eventually I met my business partner and the business I was working for, you know, was funded again and started making additional investments and was cruising along just fine. And I felt good about you know, exiting that and, and moving into this idea that my business partner and I'd come together on, which was to have 
a neighborhood brewery producing a variety of different beers that were you know, completely transparent. Um, one, of the, one of the issues that I had with the beer industry at the time was that a lot of it was contract brewed mm-hmm. and people were not authentic and honest about that. So they were, you know, selling their brand as a local thing. Meanwhile, it was brewed, you know, somewhere far, far away in batch sizes that meant that it was sitting around just getting stale. And uh, people were not being offered a true good flavor experience that they should have been. And we set out to change that. So we we built a relatively small brewery, a 10-barrel brew house. At the time, we had... uh, um, four 10-barrel tanks and two 20-barrel tanks, and not a huge seller, but it gave us the ability to start making a variety of beers and, you know, really living the homebrew sort of ethos. And at the same time, keeping things fresh and turning over and, you know, introducing folks to uh, flavor experiences that they hadn't been given in this area. So we, yeah, we worked pretty hard to make sure that you know we're constantly offering new products and you know delving into all of our home brewing books and and you know the different styles that um weren't getting made and giving people an opportunity to to taste that well i was gonna say i think the facility that we're in here right now i mean, it feels like and this is just rough guess i mean we're like about a third a third tasting room with tables and and chairs and then two-thirds uh, production facility but so it is on the weekends it's yeah somewhere between the third and a half tasting room mm-hmm. um throughout the week we you know put up some barriers and use you know up a, a bit of that space for loading and unloading uh getting beer out getting malt in cans and stuff in yeah and when I was here earlier today, there was a creative repositioning of bottles because. Uh, it's a game of Tetris in this place. Yeah, we're we're tight on space, absolutely. Well, your fermentation space is just like, uh, I think you can maybe fit a letter between some of those tanks. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we started, we had six tanks, and we never thought we'd add any more. And some of them you could, you know, I could walk between. And now, yeah, you can barely fit a penny between them. Uh, just, yeah, it's the way you, yeah, you, you f*** up when you start, and then you figure it out as you get more mature and... Uh, yeah, so the, the cellar has grown from six tanks to 17, um, and that gives us the ability to, to, you know, the relatively small tanks, so single and double batch size on a 10-barrel brew house. Mm-hmm. So we get to do a lot of different varieties of beer. So we've got 10 taps. There's uh, something kicked tonight, which, you know, mm-hmm. gets us down to nine that we're pouring. There's usually a few more in the fridge, but, I mean, that's what we want to offer people is an experience. You know, you come in and... Traditionally, you know, the bars around here, you've got 10 taps of pale lager, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the States 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And, uh, and, and you come here and you get, you know, everything from a, from a sour beer to a, a lager to a milk stout and, you know, lots of stuff in between. And, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it seems like the traditional uh, hotel or pub experience uh, here in Australia seems to be like, yeah, we have, we have these taps and that's it. It's very different than like the American beer enthusiast uh, type place where it's like, oh, what do we got new now? You yeah. Know, so, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that dynamicism starting to be built in. Do you, do you get any pushback from that from anybody or is the clientele here the type of people who are looking for that? 
Um, the inner west where we are is definitely some liberal thinkers who, you know, come here and, and live here because there's a lot of creative shit happening. Some incredible, incredible people uh, doing really wacky, wild things in, in very different, diverse industries. But generally speaking, on a weekend, our number one selling beer is our American Pale Ale. It's all Cascade hops. It's uh, it finishes around uh, 2.5 Play-Doh. So, you know, you've got a good balance of, of bitterness and a bit of malt. Uh, and the second best-selling beer is, is we call Just Beer. It's an Australian lager. Uh, but those two routinely are our best-selling beers. So most of the folks who walk in here just say, I just want a beer or I'll have a pale ale because they know what that is. The other eight, you you have to get them to try. But mm-hmm. when you do, they're generally very accepting. They're very, you know, I, I, I rarely work the bar here, but when I do, my favorite thing to do is give somebody something that I expect that they've never had before. And almost every time they, you know, they smile and they enjoy it. And, you know, they genuinely are surprised by what a beer can be. Mm-hmm. So it's still yeah, very gratifying. Right. So we got Jersey boy makes good in the financial industry. Gets, uh, gets lucky, gets here to Australia. It's here for a little bit. Gets into gets into homebrewing. Were you into homebrewing before you came to Australia, or? Yeah, my first paycheck from working at the bank, I bought homebrewing equipment with. Very nice. So you you, you transferred the hobby over here, and um, was when you got here to Australia, was the hobby a little um, defensive in nature, shall we say? Like I want good beer and I can't necessarily find it. Yeah, I mean the the local scene here was very different, so I had to sort of understand what what was available to me and how to use what I was or, or the methods that I was taught and how to figure out how to you know, get those materials and make the beer that I wanted to make. So they had some interesting techniques here, brewing a bag and, and mm-hmm. chilling in a cube. These were ideas I'd never, I didn't read about. I didn't know about in the States. And, um, and then just some of the, the, the nomenclature, you know, the golden ales versus pale ales versus amber ales. I don't know, some silly shit that now is a commercial brewer. I look back on and go, that, that was stupid. Like, just, just run with it. But the, yeah, the hobby for me here, like, it had to fit into my work schedule. And mm-hmm. thankfully, the work wasn't too intense. So I, you know, managed to get a few batches done and, and keep plugging away and having fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the, the beer scene here was unfortunately full of folks who were, you know, a little less transparent than I was accustomed to in the States where, you know, I had in New Jersey a couple of brew pubs not too far away and I had access to, you know, Brooklyn Brewing Company and, you know, they're contract brewers, but they, they were proud of it and they talked about it. And here contract brewers like pretended to be local companies and mm-hmm. they just weren't. Well, they, you see, I mean, you see a lot of that still in the States where, you know, like, yeah, you know, there are beer companies out there. They're just basically marketing arms. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And unfortunately, that was the, the way it was here. So, um, yeah, my home brewing was a little bit to make sure that I could keep having fun and keep drinking beer that nobody was making while at the same time mm-hmm. just continuing to get better at it and, yeah, keep plugging away. So then, okay, so you have your, your business partner, you guys start formulating the plan for batch. You find you find this spot, and what you've been open for five years, right? Yeah, or just about. Just about five years. So yeah, 
a month shy of five years. So when you guys opened your doors, how many, how many true microbreweries or you know, independent breweries were there here in Sydney? Uh, near to us, Young Henry's was definitely the first. Um, there's a, a business in the city called Red Oak who'd been making fantastic beers. And as I... Yeah, I, I literally just had dinner at Red Oak tonight. I, yeah, I, I uh, took this week-long intensive class in homebrewing. And, uh, and that guy opened me up to this concept of like fresh beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't really grasp it at that point back in uh, 2000, uh, 2011. And like th- this idea that hops are degrading from the minute you put them in your beer and that you know, freshness is, is, is paramount. Uh, I started to appreciate that at the Red Oak. And you know, those guys, I still don't know to this day where they make their beer, but they've got a, a, a restaurant in the city that, you know, is, is does good trade and they make good beer and you know i used to frequent and and i could i could taste freshness when i went there and i uh i definitely connected with that so i had a very nice uh munich lager and a very nice bread from them yeah in their food so yeah uh but so you had those guys any any standalone places that weren't also like you know or that they were kind of trying to do what you're doing now or i mean at the time, it was just Young Henry's. Young Henry's was about a, a, a year before us. Mm-hmm. And since then, they've gone on a, a very different path. They're, they you know, turn out a lot of beer. Um, uh, they have a very, very crowded tasting room. They've, they've really pushed culture and, and beer culture and music, something that they're passionate about. So they, they've helped the craft beer industry to just get recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and their management is are, are very involved in local politics and making sure that us as an industry are protected from, you know, government overreach and, and, and crazy citizens who think that beer is evil. Uh, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, but, yeah, so when we got started, I'm not going to say we were pioneers in any way, but we were certainly uh, on the early end of a, of a growth trajectory that now has seven breweries in this suburb and something like 15 in a couple mile radius mm-hmm. and what uh sydney's how many million people uh this yeah i think there's about four million people in the you know very loose parenthesis uh sydney area but in the city itself it's something more like three or four hundred thousand and then uh you know you drive 45 minutes north an hour and a half west and an hour south and that's like what people are talking about when they say the 4 million that is in Sydney. So it's really a region, not a city. Having come up through the, the southern reaches in order to reach up here, yeah, now our south, it still feels very rural to me. So that- it, it is, it is. It's like being in you know, in Maplewood, New Jersey, right outside of Newark. Like if, if people are talking about how many people are in Manhattan, like you say 8 million, and that's what's on that island. When people talk about 4 million in Sydney, they're talking about what would cover most of northern New Jersey. <laughs> so it's, it's very, like, a different concept. But, uh, yeah, so, so 15 breweries in this region, you know, is, is, is not a lot. Mm-hmm. There could be many more. Unfortunately, right now, most of the breweries are all sort of huddled around the city. Uh, but technically, the city is not 
like geographically the center of of the area. So there's another city called Parramatta, about 40, 30 minutes drive west, and that is the geographical center of Sydney. And that, you know, that is where breweries should start popping up and and progressing, you know, further north and west and uh, and you know, getting good beer out to the folks who can't sit in two hours of traffic to get to my brewery. Living in Los Angeles, I have no idea about sitting two hours in traffic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's your daily commute, I'm sure. So, um, okay, so I mean, obviously, then really, you guys were in on the ground floor of you know what hopefully is a continuing burgeoning revolution of good beer in the city. Um. What do, you, what do you think you established about yourselves that, that got you in a position to be, you know, sort of one of the better, you know, better known names and, and respected names uh, here in the city with your beer? We, uh, I mean, when, I, when, I, when we were setting up, I was reading every book I could get my hands on, everything that the Brewers Association would publish, all the home brewing books. So I had, I mean, we, we had an idea of what quality was about and pursuing you know, quality and, and consistency of product. And while at the same time you can have a variety of different products, when you are making the same product over and over again, that has to be consistent. And quality itself has to, you have to have processes to make sure that you know, your, your ferments are going well and your flavor is where it is supposed to be. Um, so at the same time, we had this you know, strong ethos around process and, con- and, and consistency. We also wanted to offer people variety. So we keep a tab on our website of every beer that we release that's to us a new recipe. Mm-hmm. And yes, sometimes those new recipes are the same where you know dry hopped one way or a different way. And yes, we call that two different beers. But sometimes these different beers are completely unique and completely different concepts and i think at last count we were at 168 in our five years so this idea of constantly bringing out a new flavor Mm -hmm. experience for people is definitely what sets us apart uh while at the same time maintaining that level of quality so so when people go to a bar or a restaurant and they see that there's a batch beer on maybe they don't recognize the name of that beer but they know batch and they're happy to give us a try knowing that you know they've had other ones before and they've been happy mm-hmm. so so i sort of equate it to if you go to your local restaurant like you don't know that the menu is the same every time you go but you trust that the chef's going to put something good in front of you so you're you're happy to just you know be there pay your money and and order whatever the special is that day because you know it's going to be good because you trust them i mean i think what you're talking about is I think a lesson that a lot of American breweries are trying to get around, right? I mean, like, so I nowadays with the number of breweries that we have in the U S you know, it's the tap space is a premium. Everything else is a premium. And really because of the way that modern craft beer drinkers are, you know, it's all about the variety. It's all about this. You know, it's no longer the core four plus your, your seasonals. It's now, okay. Hey, you know, this is the new thing. So yeah, I think, there is that very similar thing going on where it's all about what does my name mean? You know, not to put it in the old fashioned way, but you know, it's like, you know, Hey, look, you know, I think a lot of us, when we were kids, you know, you had your dad say, you know, 
you have to maintain a good name. You know, the second you spoil your good name, you're done. That's yeah, that's true. It's I mean, it's it's our brand. That's mm-hmm. I mean, that's my business partner talking. But uh, yeah, it's it's about establishing that brand and what that brand stands for. And for us, it was community and transparency and 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 welcoming. Like like we've got all these taps, and half the people who show up here just want a pale ale or a, or a lager. But we want to make sure that they feel welcome to try whatever it is that they haven't tried before. Like, you don't have to come here with the, with the homebrewing knowledge of different beer styles. You just have to come here being willing to listen to what my staff have to tell you about the different stuff we make. So, in other words, it doesn't matter if you are the most um, irresponsible IPA drinker out there in the world in terms of I want everything. Uh, all the hops all the time. Yeah. Or if you're the old guy who just wants to, you know, this has to have has to have happened at some point where you've had somebody walk in and say, "What do you have that's like VB?" Yeah, yeah. Um, happens regularly, and I mean, I I love a good lager, mm-hmm. so we wanted to. Ha- I wanted to have one on tap, uh, and our just beer is is that like half the people who walk in here say, "I just want a beer," right? And and that's literally what we named it. But the fun part about that one for me is it, it's, it's a just beer. It's not just a beer. It's, it's also just in the fact that uh, the barley that we buy, uh, I know the farmers who grew it. Mm-hmm. I know they're getting paid a premium for that barley. I know the man who malts it. Uh, it comes straight from the paddock to the malt house, which is you know, 20, 30 Ks away. And then it comes straight to me in Sydney, you know, four or five hours on a truck. But um, the alternative at the time when when this particular team started their company called Voyager Craft Malt uh, was to buy through the, the, the wholesaler who you know, couldn't tell me where it was grown, couldn't actually tell me which malt house it was malted in. So it could have been somewhere in WA, could have been in, in Victoria, could have been New South Wales. Their distribution was based in uh, in a suburb of Melbourne. So if the malt was grown in WA and malted in a WA malt house, it would go to Victoria and then it would come up to, to me in New South Wales. And it would just spend a lot, awful lot of time, you know, burning diesel fuel to get to me. So you know, this idea of being able to, to talk to the farmer, talk to the maltster and have the stuff sent straight to me meant that you know, it was just for the environment. It was just for the farmer because he's getting paid better. And, you know, it's, it's a simple beer with a relatively mild hop bill and a malt-driven pale lager that, mm-hmm. you know, I enjoy drinking the crap out of and so does a lot of my customers. Well, I mean, tonight when it was uh, a little bit warmer in here as we had all the bodies, I mean, that beer did go down really nicely. Yeah, that's- so. Well, no, but let's talk. I think we need to expand on on what you're talking about because the beer that we have in front of us, uh, the the hippie voodoo, gold, yeah. right? Trippy, trippy hippies, trippy, voodoo, trippy hippie. gold. Yeah, trippy hippie voodoo gold. <sighs> Too many words. Um, I mean, this plays into that same ethos, right? Yes, it does. Yeah. So, d- describe uh, describe for our listeners the beer that we have and why it connects into the same story. It's a uh, well-hopped amber ale. Uh, we do relatively small batches of it. So, again, our, our brew house is 10 barrels. We can either do singles or doubles. Uh, 
with this beer, we tend to do singles because we want it to uh, stay fresh. We want it to move through, you know, get consumed relatively quickly and, and then have a fresh batch coming out as it's finishing up. Um, the beer itself is named after the, the malt uh, from Voyager. Uh, they, they can't make a crystal malt. But so this was the closest thing they could do to crystal malt without, you know, the ability to actually do that. Um, so it's it's slightly more fermentable than a crystal malt, but it still does leave you with some unfermentable sugar in your in the finished beer. Uh, it's got a, a nice color on it, so it gives you that sort of gold into amber color. Um, and it was yeah, it was a product that they, you know, they were messing around trying to make crystal malt, realized. They couldn't quite achieve that, but they achieved something that they were very happy with. And they showcased it at a conference a year and a half ago. And my team at the conference tasted it, loved it, and wanted to make a beer featuring it. And and that's what we got. We got Trippy Hippie's Voodoo Gold. Well, it's, uh, Eldorado Dry Hop. Um, mostly pale malt, a bit of this voodoo malt, which is where we get the name from. And uh, it's all, all malt is grown, you know, by our, our you know, our colleagues at Voyager and malted there and, and then, yeah, sent straight to us. Well, and the things I'm getting, like, and it seems very consistent with a lot of the, the experience I've had in Australia recently is that the hops come, uh, come a bit with a little bit more of the leaf character. Then I think, like, what I'm used to, what I usually see on, like, the west coast of America, right? There's a little bit more of that leafiness. That's not a bad thing. I'm, I'm just trying to spell it out for the listeners. And then there's also, and I think some of it, I, th- I think some of it must come from the, uh, using these craft malts, because I see the same thing with, like, some of the things I use, like the Mecca Grade and uh, Root Shoot and a couple others in the U.S. There's There's a more intense breadiness. I think to the the pale malts that are being produced by these smaller maltsters, than there is to the stuff that comes out of the big maltsters, and that plays into a lot of these beers that I'm having, including this one. So Voyagers, uh, they malt a few different barley varieties, and I, I think, I mean, I, I'm no scientist, but I spent a bit of time looking into this, and uh, I I believe, you know, grains like Marisotter. Um, you know, people people perceive a, a richer flavor out of it. For me, I haven't found anything scientific that points to any attribute of that malt that has a greater threshold of flavor other than its fermentability. So mm-hmm. the attenuation level that, that that malt offers versus some of the stuff that's bred, particularly in this country where um, pr- most of the malt is sent to uh, Asian brewers who use mm-hmm. a lot of adjuncts who just want lots of enzymes and and super fast, super attenuative malt. Give, give me simple sugars. Give me dry, dry give residual. Me, give me efficient production of alcohol without any any thought around flavor. So that's unfortunately where the Australian grain industry is gone. So uh, the malt I was being sold that was you know local mm-hmm. uh, had. Yeah, very high attenuation levels, very little flavor, very little residual sugar. And um, when I started talking to the folks at Voyager, they they were sitting on this variety of barley that 
they can grow and sell for feed, but the maltsters won't touch it because it's it, agronomically across all of Australia, it's, it's not that good of a performer. But in this particular region where Voyager is, it, it performs very well. So they're sitting on you know, the geography that grows this grain very well. And the grain you know, has, a, has a significantly lower attenuation level. And I get a richer, fuller-bodied beer out of it. And, and maybe that's where you're getting your breadiness. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know the grains that Root Shoot uses, and, mm-hmm. and I don't know American well, grains I th- I think I think it's the same thing. I, I do think there's a level of uh, protein, uh, you know, what the, the amount of protein is, and then, yeah, just how much actually remains when, when the malt is said and done. Yeah. But it is, and also I would say, like in comparison to a number of the other beers I've had, you know, this one that has not only that upfront hop aroma, you know, but it also has a very nice, you know, bitter line through it, but not IPA bitterness, right? You know, like a lot of, you know, like West Coast IPAs, but it's a nice bitter line through it that finally comes into sort of a, a minerality in the finish. That just kind of sits there and finally dries everything out and kind of goes, okay, hey, guess what? You're ready for the next sip, right, buddy? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. We've, we've got a couple of rules here. We have a two pint rule. Uh, if we're going to make a beer, it has to be designed for somebody to enjoy a second pint. And that, that plays right into what you just said. Like the sip needs to finish and evaporate and go away and leave you wanting more. Um, I forget the other rule right now. It'll come back to me. It's late. Well, now, with this sort of, I don't want to say localism, but I mean, there's kind of a state pride thing happening here with like using these local ingredients. Um, what sort of challenges have you run into with it? I mean, like, where, where's this bitten you in the butt? Um,. Well, right now in the state of New South Wales, Voyager is the only company I can buy where I have full transparency that what I buy, I know where it came from. And I know it was fully New South Wales. The other in, industrial, or I shouldn't say the other, but the industrial malt houses, uh, Joe White and Barrett Burston, who are owned by Cargill and Grain Corp, mm-hmm. respectively, are huge multinational corporations. Oh, yeah. Car- yeah, Cargill drops a lot of malt in the U.S. too, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they have no transparency. They're trying to work on that, but to their credit, they're trying. But they just are at such a, an immense scale that uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, if or when they can achieve it. Just, just for context, I, I visited a Cargill malt house today, coincidentally, and they produce 600 times more malt than I use. Mm-hmm. 600 of me. There's, there's not 600 of me in this country. And um, that's, you know, getting off topic. Um, so the, the, the challenge I've had is that to get that transparency and, and traceability, I've had to import malt from New Zealand, mm-hmm. which, you know, New Zealand's kind of like, like the closest thing Australia has to a sibling. It's not that far, but it's not technically local. Um, I completely don't care. And I get my head around that one because, again, the folks over there uh, at Gladfield's, they are farmers first and maltsters second. Uh, and, and that's kind of switching for them as their malt business grows and, and, and Doug and Gabby are just, you know, 
brilliant people working really hard to do what they're doing and, and their malt business has outgrown their own personal farm and now mm-hmm. they have to buy malt or sorry, barley from some other farms. Yeah, and, and by the way, Gabby is really awesome. I've, I've met Gabby. And yeah, the, she's a trip. She's cool. Yeah, we're, we're going to get Gabby up on the podcast at some point here. Yeah, get Doug too. You, you got to drag it out of him, but he's funny. <laughs> he's, they're both beautiful people. Um, but but that's my, my challenge right now is that the industry, the, my suppliers aren't, uh, aren't there yet. So mm-hmm. like with Voyager, I coincidentally heard about them while they were, you know, getting some contracts malt made and they were selling it to home brewers. And, you know, it's at the same moment I had my, you know, kind of revelation uh, and emailed them and said, I don't want to support the, you know, industrialized malt houses anymore. I want to support somebody who is on my scale. And they said, like, yeah, they were they were debating whether or not they should invest their life savings in building a malt house, and you know my email kind of maybe tipped them over the edge and got them to to get into it. It's always a bit of a challenge when you're you're facing that little firing line. Yeah, it's a scary scary cliff to be looking over. But well, I mean, you did go from the lucrative world of high finance to the not quite as lucrative world of craft brewing. Yeah, no regrets there. <laughs> <laughs> None at all. But yeah, I mean, uh, Stu and Brad—they made the investment. They're they're plugging away. They're onto their third iteration of their own facility, and um, yeah, things are, are going strength to strength for them. And you know, we're getting good malt. We're getting a variety of malt, so we can make beers like this Trippie Voodoo Gold. And you know, that we are finding our inspiration from what they're able to do. And today, we mashed our first batch uh of triticale so that's the wheat and rye hybrid they got their hands on a few ton and um you know again the industrial guys do 360 ton batches like these guys do one or 10 ton batches so if they find an obscure grain somewhere and they want to malt it they can i mean i use 250 300 kilo a batch so if i want to brew beer with it i can you know it's they're on the scale that I'm on, so we, we get to work together and keep variety up and keep interest up and consumers enjoy it, brewers enjoy it, everyone's having fun. Has there ever been an ingredient that you've tried to play with to keep up this sort of local movement that just didn't work? Was, it, was there anything that was disappointing or, um, or a, time when, a time when you said, oh Look, I mean, I, I work with another local guy who's buying barley in northern new south wales and uh he doesn't have a malt house yet he's hoping to build one uh and he has to get it contract malted in melbourne so it does spend a bit of time on a truck going back and forth um and and john campbell at provenance malt um sources some fantastic barley but he's dealing with the same climate conditions everyone else are and you know it's very variable so we we've had a few frustrating stuck mashes and some you know poor efficiencies coming out of certain things at certain times and um you know it's it's not so much that the flavor is disappointing or the you know the fermentation doesn't go well it's just that you know the brewers have to you know think on their feet and kind of navigate through a busy brew day with a few extra variables that they're not used to dealing with it it just requires them to learn their ingredients which is a thing that we we tell people a lot yeah learn your ingredients yeah well so here we are you're just about five years into into the company being 
the company and sending beers out. Where do you see, or where actually, where do you hope to see the Sydney beer market go? Where do you hope to see Batch go? I, I'm, I'm an economist, and I'm a capitalist. But living in Australia for ten, eleven years, I've become a bit of a socialist, perhaps. Uh, I want my entire community, and that's from the farmer who grew the barley to the beer drinker, and not even the beer drinker, but to the guy who lives next door to the beer drinker. I want everyone to just be happy. I don't want my beer drinkers to piss off their neighbors. I don't want my farmer to go, uh, you know, without being paid well for what he does. So, I mean, I, I hope that all consumers recognize that, you know, what we're trying to do and what a lot of other businesses out there are trying to do is lift the game for everyone in that, yes, my beer costs more. I admit that. I, I'm not building a commodity. I'm building a unique product and that uses unique raw materials. And I want my consumers to appreciate that and know that when they buy that beer, they're supporting a good farmer who's using good soil maintenance and, and responsible farming practices and that you know we're doing the best we can for sustainability in our facility and you know that everybody wins in this environment where people are getting properly paid the environment's being looked after the beer tastes really good and everyone has a good friday night and you know says cheers and relaxes and enjoys so you know that that's that's kind of where i hope it goes where we look out for each other and and we have some fun and you know nobody's getting you know stupid rich but nobody's you know starving or getting shit on so that's, that's kind of where i leave it so good yeah get uh, spread uh, spread the wealth yeah, which is yeah a very terribly uh terribly uh, socialist terribly idea. socialist thing to say from yeah. uh, from a guy who worked for bear stearns and jp morgan and company yeah well <laughs> take the good with the bad <laughs> well I, I mean i have to say i mean this is, I mean, this has been very interesting to see and, and to learn more. Because I mean, like, I mean, you're saying here, I mean, you're you're saying that you're 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 spreading this message, right? You know, as we're talking, but I mean, if you just I mean, if you walked in here cold, you know, it, it, you're not you're not preaching the message. I mean, you're not like you know trying to stand up on the bully pulpit and, and pound it into everybody's head, you know, from the second they walk in your door. I mean, but it's still there. It's in the background. It's because uh, the forefront, uh, the forefronting thing that I get when I came when I came in here was, hey, come have a beer. Yeah, that's where it begins, right? And and the beer is five bucks. You walk in, you get three hundred mils. It's, you know, it's, I don't know what is what is that? Ten ounces? Mm-hmm. Not a not a bad pour for five bucks, especially in this country. That's well, Australian I, dollars. Though. I was gonna say and that's Australian dollars, which sixty nine cents on the dollar right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's where it starts. And if you look, if you spend some time and you look around, like just over the takeaway fridge, there mm-hmm. is a is a mural painted that represents every tree that we've planted mm-hmm. to offset the carbon we produce when we drive our trucks around. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we count up the lead, liters of diesel that we burn, and and we have a decent estimate on the liters of diesel burned for every pallet we sent interstate and 
you know, we pay a company to plant trees for us to sequester carbon back into into the soil. Um, so there's little things around that, yeah, you pick up on the vibe that we're trying to put out. But, you're, yeah, we don't try to beat anybody over the head with it. Like, yeah. Well, because... I mean, you could. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could take the strong preacher stance, but that's gonna uh, that's gonna drive away people. You know, that they'll to, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm too busy like keeping my team focused and making beer and you know paying bills to have time to market all the stuff that we do. That's you know sustainable and and all. You know, all that warm and fuzzy stuff. Like, I, I literally just don't have time to tell everyone that story. But you're still doing it, which is actually, to me, that's, that's more impressive. Yeah. Well, I did put it into a book that I, I had, well, that a publisher published a couple months ago. Um, it, it's, it's first and foremost a book on how to make beer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, simple as, you know, it's, it's, it's that friend that you don't have who knows how to make beer that sits on the table next to you as you make your first batch of beer but throughout it just as in this building it's i've kind of woven my ethos for how to you know source your suppliers and 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 you know how to not get sucked into that consumer driven society where when you get off a plane in any given country you walk out of the airport and there are you know that shopping mecca that they impose on you where everything airport in the whole world has the same 10 stores like how many gucci bags can you buy when you get off an airplane so go away leave me alone how how many times do you have to visit mcdonald's or maccas or whatever you want to call it wherever you are the whole world's being whitewashed by consumerism and yes this is my little like you to that so whatever from wall street to that mantra that's kind of amazing so now, just to close things off uh, before we wandered off into the night, um, I always like to ask people, because it's not just about the beer, and obviously we've talked about a lot of things that are not just about the beer, but what non-beer thing is out there that that you're incredibly passionate about? Like that, that Food. Beer? Food? Yeah. My next venture uh, will be learning to grow my own food. Oh, so we're going full farmer. Yeah, nice. I thought I might want to raise animals. I thought I might want to grow barley. And I mean, I love my farmers, uh, but I do not want to grow barley. I can't stand how dry and uh, and and yeah, just quiet it is. I need some noise. So I want to I want to bring good food grown in responsible ways to New Jersey, which is desperately in need of it. I mean, there's, there's lots of good people doing lots of great things, and I want to just get on board with what they're doing and, and join that fight. Which is amazing, because, I mean, if you if you step outside of the city areas of New Jersey, which, I mean, I mean overall, state-wise, is not, I mean, they're not... does not have the best reputation. It doesn't, but, I mean, it, there's a reason it's the Garden State. I mean, you step outside of those big cities, and next thing you know, it's like, yeah, you're in the middle of farm farmland, and there's actually some good farms out there. Yeah, you. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, a lot of it's been developed into residential, and that's yeah. fine, whatever. But the truth is, you don't need a lot of land to grow a lot of food. Like there are practices that you can use that are incredibly efficient and incredibly labor intensive, and that's the problem. Is like, and we sort of touched on this before. Everybody wants everything super cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, cheap food. Like there, there, there needs to be a way 
there comes a cost with the cheap food. We just don't see it as consumers. Yeah, there needs to be a way to put the value on food based on the nutrition you're getting from it, not from the quantity you're getting from it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't, I don't know what that is. If somebody solves that problem, they're gonna, they're gonna change the world. But um, there's, there's nutritional value in everything we eat, and you know, if you can grow food the right way, you can produce incredibly nutritious things with without chemical inputs and, you know, using, you know, biology and, um, and, and you don't need a massive amount of land to feed people. You just need somebody who's going to spend the time to make sure that, that we're all eating well. And, you know, hmm. well, there, I, I think there's value there and consumers hopefully will, you know, when someone invents this way of, of measuring it, then consumers will be willing to spend a little more for a bag of carrots. There we go. All right. Well, Hey, so from, New Jersey and the financial industry to Australia and continuing homebrewing as a defensive measure. So now not only, you know, leading a bit of a, a bit of a renaissance in the Sydney brewing scene to also trying to fight the good fight for both beer, farmers, consumers, and everybody else on this planet. You know, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thank you for sharing the beer. Thank you for sharing the venue. Thank yeah. you for, yeah, thank you for coming out. And, and yeah, so I'm sorry I missed the talk that you guys did before, but I'm really glad that we had the space to let you do it. Yeah, and Chris, what's the, what's the book? The book is called Brew a Batch. Um, it, it is available in the States on Amazon and some of the other retailers, but uh, yeah, my publisher down here in Australia is, um, now primarily sells it in Australia and New Zealand, but uh, Murdoch Books did a fantastic job you know, beautiful imagery. Uh, the words are, you know, they leave a little to be desired because they're mine, but it's, it's a nice book. I'm, I'm really happy with it. I'm glad they picked me to do it, and I'm glad that, you know, I, I could actually make it happen. And I'm glad that my team kept making fantastic beer so that I could sit at home and write a book. It's kind of fun. It's always funny how that happens. You always need support behind writing a book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Chris, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you taking it. It was a pleasure, man. I appreciate the time. Man, what a journey that guy has had, huh? Yeah, it's funny how this works, right? You know, you go from New Jersey to Australia, from finance to, to brewing. It's kind of a shift. But I really like, you know, some of the stuff that he was talking about there. I like his support of his local maltster, uh, Voyager. And I got a chance to taste, uh, taste some of their malt as well. It's really interesting. This is, again, one of the things I think is going to be a big game changer for a lot of breweries, at least on the smaller side, is differentiation by ingredients, which also means going with some smaller people, like, for instance, our sponsor, Mechagrade. So, yeah, right. We see that a lot, that uh, you know, craft malts are really, really coming on strong because they really give you a chance to make a statement with your beer that may be different from somebody else's. Yep. So I highly recommend the Voodoo Gold. That was awesome. And actually, I mean, I think it was great. If you also want to see a result out of Batch Brewing Company, something else that we did during our talk, we actually did a small triangle test there, just a a sample triangle test. And it wasn't to generate any data. It was just to show people how a triangle test actually works, right? Because you can sit there and you can describe to people how to do a triangle test and people won't get it. But you put three glasses down in front of them and suddenly they realize the terror that is a triangle test. (laughs) Yes, indeed. And we we got three uh, we got three volunteers in the audience and had them do the triangle test. And if you want to read the results, go look at experimentalbrew.com. 
It's kind of fascinating. It reminds you why a triangle test is a shockingly difficult creature. That's right, indeed. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show with some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other than beer. So please stick around. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Okay, it's time. It's time for Danny and I to prove just how much we know about beer. Uh, <laughs> oh boy, we're in trouble. Uh, and so a couple of questions this week. And don't forget, guys, this is episode 80. And so if I carry the one, carry the two, carry the uh, divided by zero, uh, we've got two months. Two months before our next all Q&A show. So start getting your questions in. Give us some time to research and hopefully get you some better answers than what we can think of off the cuff. And our first question for the day comes from Scott Anderson, who asks, this may be a basic question, but I wanted your guys' opinion. Uh, oh, by the way, love the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I'm brewing an Oktoberfest partial batch this weekend, and I had the idea to kind of make it a Christmas ale by adding spruce essence. Should I add it to the boil or the secondary? And followed up, if not a Oktoberfest, what sort of base style to use for a spruce beer to begin with? Denny. Okay, well, you know... I started off answering this question in my usual curmudgeonly way by saying, well, I wouldn't add it to either the boil or secondary. Uh, but that has more to do with the fact that I don't see it working in an Oktoberfest than, uh, than anything about the spruce itself. Uh, while in general spruce beers can be pretty bizarre, I have had a couple real good ones. But you know, Scott, if you want to add the spruce essence to an Oktoberfest, I always like to add any of my flavoring ingredients like that as late in the process as possible. Do it post-fermentation so that you can taste as you go and get the right amount. If you toss it into the fermenter, into the boil, into the mash, something like that, you're just making a wild guess as to the amount to use and what the effects will be. So I would say wait until the beer is finished. When you're ready to bottle or keg it, Pour yourself four two-ounce samples of the beer, dose each one with a different amount of the spruce essence, taste them, decide which one you like best, scale that up to your batch size, and go from there. Uh, in terms of what kind of beer style you might want to use the spruce with if you're not putting it in, uh, in the Oktoberfest, pale ale or maybe even an IPA is always a good place to go with spruce. I think that the... Uh, Hop flavors and aromas will play pretty nicely with the spruce essence and, and work in your favor. Uh, I have had very bad luck putting spruce into a porter. It made it taste like bad cough syrup. So <laughs> based on my experience, I would stay away from that. But in either case, add that spruce as late in the process as possible and do it to taste. And by taste, we mean very sparingly. 
Spruce is a very powerful flavor. Yeah. Remember, you can always add more, but you can't take it out. So, again, that's why I like my my method of uh, pouring samples, putting a different amount in each one, and uh, tasting it to decide what I like best. Yeah, the number of spruce beers that I've had that really taste more like pine salt than a beer is incalculable, so be very judicious. Yeah, I would say that of the spruce beers I've had, you know, maybe maybe two out of 20 have been what I would really consider well-made and with the spruce really enhancing the beer instead of tasting like you had spruce needles in your teeth. Well, and I, was gonna, I think the best one I've had is probably from Alaskan, and, and I think they actually use fresh spruce tips in there and not essence. So, Yeah, can- right. And there used to be a brewery here in Oregon called Solettes that made one. It was really good. They were out on the coast. They would go out in the woods, harvest the spruce themselves. So at, at any rate, add it late, add it sparingly, and pay attention. There you go. Okay, this next one goes to Drew. It's from Gus Chambers, who says... Hey guys, I used to work at a local brew shop called Brew and Grow in Rockford, Illinois. It has been closed down since January, sadly. My old boss gave me an old Vintner's Reserve Chardonnay, probably years old, when we were cleaning up the building. I want to use the bag of juice for a future beer, maybe one similar to Dogfish Head's 61 IPA. I'm trying to think of possible future combinations and ratios to do that. Let me know if this sounds like a good idea or a bad idea, if you can. Just curious on your guys' take on it, and if you've done it before. Thanks again. Love the show. So, uh, what say you, Mr. Beecham? Well, uh, what says me is, yeah, I've done it, and no big surprise, the place where I've done it is, I've done it with a Saison. Uh, <laughs> to me, it's just natural, because we have the whole theory out there that says, oh, well, you know, if you do... Um, you know, if you, if you got these yeast, part of the reason that they're, they're so finicky is because they're actually originally, you know, red wine yeast. And so it just made sense to me to say, okay, well, look, if we have that legend, why don't we just, you know, play with the legend and mix wine in with the, the, the beer. Now I actually used for mine, I did, um, actually the, the concentrate, not the, not the juice bags, like the Vintner's Reserve that you have, which is slightly less concentrated. I did uh, this just big sort of, you know, wonderful, you know, gloppy Merlot stuff that I would never use to actually make wine. And I mixed that in. I put one can of that into a five to six gallon batch. And so thinking about that, that can was enough to make, I think that can's enough to make two gallons of wine. So if you follow that sort of ratio, I think that will work. I would probably not use a Chardonnay in an IPA because I think all you're going to get out of the Chardonnay against the hops is going to be nothing but, you know, dryness and maybe some fruitiness. I think if you've got a Chardonnay in there, you want to give something where it's going to have a chance to to add some unique characters. And that was part of the reason why I did the red wine with the Saison yeast, because I thought that would be really fun and playful and give a chance for everything to express. I really like that beer. I can't find the Alexander's concentrate that I used to use, um, but I would be totally willing to try it with the Vintner's Reserve piece. Uh, as for ratio, like I said, I would probably look at trying to keep it somewhere around you know, 20% of the total must or wort or whatever and go from there. 
Yeah. And uh, I will cite the example once again of my favorite brewery in the world, Ale Song, here in Eugene. These guys have a tasting room that's right next door to one of the largest wineries in the state, and they do a lot of collaborations. Ale Song has made beers with Pinot Noir juice, because Pinot Noir is what we grow here in Oregon mainly. They've done some with uh, with Chardonnay juice, uh, and both of these have also been aged in wine barrels. And, you know, they use as a base style a Saison slash farmhouse kind of beer, and it has worked incredibly well. So I'm with you, man, on uh, on staying with that kind of style for them. I think that that's going to work really well. I agree with you that the, the IPA, I just don't think that you would get much out of the juice at all that way. So, yeah, I, I would go with it. Uh, as to amounts, yeah, I, I think 20% of your total fermentables is a good idea. And I definitely think that you'll have something interesting in there. And plus, also, if you go down the Saison route, if it turns out that that age-old Chardonnay juice isn't actually doing you any favors, at that point in time, I think you can then also extend yourself and put in some Britannomyces and use those to sort of express some different whiny characters as well. So, And that is, uh, once again, exactly what Ale Song does, is that they use some Brett in some of these. Uh, I would guess it's probably something along the line of a Brett C, but that's just a guess. There you go. So those are our questions for today because, well, this episode's already long enough. But <laughs> I think it's time for us to get out of here. And, of course, we have to start with, uh, with a quick tip, as we always do. And this time we farmed out the quick tip like we like to. And I am actually stealing this from Martin Brungard, a comment that he made on uh, on the Homebrews Association forum uh, about water filtration and chlorine versus chloramine, because I know a lot of people love to use water filters for their, their water. The answer from Martin came about because there was a guy who had posted on the forum about a beer that he'd made that he detected chlorophenols in, even though he had filtered his water uh, that went into it. And Martin kind of like gave him an explanation of why the filtering may not have been effective. Yeah. One, of course, is remember that filters are finicky and you have to make sure you maintain them. But Martin's answer was basically, if your flow rate is greater than one gallon per minute, chlorine will pass right through a carbon filter at that rate. Basically, you're not going to be able to strip it out in time before it gets out to the other side. So if you're going you know, full speed ahead into your kettle and you have chlorine, which is the easier one to remove, uh, you're going to be having a bad time. Um, and he, he gave a really good uh, visualization of it. He basically said, here's how you see how slow the flow needs to be. Put a plug with a one sixteenth inch hole in the water line on your carbon filter, and you know turn uh, turn that out. It will reduce the it will reduce the flow to one gallon per minute or under that through a typical uh, water filter at typical water pressure. So it's really slow. It's a lot slower than you think it is. And if your water has chloramine, which a lot of our bigger municipalities do, like I do here in LA, then it's even worse. Because you have to actually keep the flow rate under one-tenth of a gallon per minute, which is the reason why I use Campton. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, unfortunately, I don't have to worry about it because there's no chlorine in my water here on my well. But yeah, for those of you who are out there trying to use a filter to get rid of chloramine, just think what that means, right? A tenth of a gallon per minute. That means it's going to take you a long time to collect your brewing water out of that filter. Yeah, well, think about it this way. It's 10 minutes to get one gallon, and if you're doing a typical batch of beer, say you need you know, eight gallons, right? 
Yeah, I would say I would say at least that accounting for mash absorption and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you, eight to ten gallons means that you're collecting water for eighty to a hundred minutes. Right, and uh, I, I would be interested to hear from anybody who uses a filter who runs it that slowly. I would think that most people use the filter because they see it as an easy solution and uh, they just go for it. Yeah, as opposed to say Campton, which you know you fill your kettle up as fast as your hose will go, toss in the Campton, wait ten minutes. Bob's your uncle. You don't even have to wait for 10 minutes. It happens pretty much instantly. I know, but I wait 10 minutes anyway because I'm me. But, yeah, I mean, that's the reason why I chose to do that because it's a lot easier. But I thought that was really useful for people to be able to get a visualization on why your filter is not always going to be able to take out your chlorine or chloramine. Let me just say, unless you drew, don't wait 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. All right. And then, of course, we have to leave you with something other than beer because there's other things than beer in life. We know that sounds weird. But... This is going to be the all-Australian theme episode, so we're going to actually give you a couple of uh, something others, uh, one of which is Australian salt and pepper squid. Holy crap. Yeah, really. Uh, I, I don't I didn't know if it was all officially salt and pepper squid, but we ate a lot of squid in Australia. Uh, one of the last nights we were there, we went to a wonderful pub in a hotel called the Metropolitan. They had a squid in a uh, kind of like a, a chili garlic sauce. That was just to die for. It was tender. It was just absolutely delicious. So that uh, that set us off on the trail of squid around Australia. Yeah, I think we had I think we had like squid at four different places afterwards. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we we started off on our road trip, and pretty much every place we stopped where we saw squid, we tried it. Uh, I have to admit the the uh, the squid from the Metropolitan in Melbourne ended up being my favorite, mm-hmm. but I don't think we had any bad squid anywhere, did we? No, and to give you an idea to all of our American listeners who are going, what's the big deal? So you know, we're used to the idea of getting calamari in our restaurants, where it's been you know sort of battered and then fried, but we get these little rings and these weird octopusy tentacly things, right? And half the time that you get them, or actually more than half the time you get them they end up being like you're chewing on pencil erasers with a crispy coating on them. These were more like they had taken the calamari tubes and flattened them out into steaks and then cut wedges into them and then dredged them in a crispy batter, fried them off just enough that the batter gets nice and crispy, but the calamari inside is still tender. I'm telling you, we need to adopt this because that was great. Yeah, I I agree, man. That that was some really great squid. I think my uh, my second favorite was what we had sitting there uh, beside the beach in Huskisson, uh in that little pub there, man. That was a that was a great night. And I have to admit that in that situation, the squid was great, but I think that the setting had a lot to do with it too, and possibly the four pint spear. Uh, that too, yeah. And of course, on that same night, that was the last day that we were driving. That was Game Five of the World Series, and. Boy, do I love modern technology because as Denny and I are driving through the coastal mountains on the coastal roads of uh, Australia, uh, we're sitting there streaming across the internet, game five of the World Series, so I could listen to my beloved Red Sox beat my hometown LA Dodgers. Yeah, it, it was it was great. Uh, I didn't really have a favorite uh, for the series, but since Drew was rooting for Boston, I did too, just to just to make him happy, a little something for the kid there. And then once we got to uh, the house we had rented uh, that evening, a beautiful Airbnb, 
Uh, I introduced Drew to a Netflix show called The Battered Bastards of Baseball about the Portland Mavericks from the 70s who were actually managed and owned by Kurt Russell's father, Bing Russell, who uh, you guys may have seen many, many years ago, if you're as old as me, as the deputy on Bonanza, the TV series, for many years. He uh, did a lot of Broadway work. And it turns out that his son, Kurt Russell, before becoming a movie star and entering the world of Disney movies, among other things, Kurt was actually an outstanding baseball player. Yep. And the whole story is, I mean, the reason for the story is they were the last sort of independent minor league baseball team that actually had players that could move up into the, into the majors. And the whole story is about how this ragamuffin team came together that, you know, nobody expected to have any chance of beating, you know, the guys with actual money and actual player talent behind them. And for the four seasons that they operated, something like four seasons, they kicked everybody's butt in that whole that whole league, but they never actually won the pennant for their league because every year when it came down to the pennant game, the majors demoted a bunch of people into that minor league system so that they can make sure that uh, the Mavericks never won a title. So, yeah, yeah, it was a great story, man. Uh, the, the uh, powers that be hated them. The people loved them. If you have Netflix, go check out the battered bastards of baseball, because if you're a baseball fan at all, you are just going to love this story. Yeah. And of course, I'm a, I, as much as a major league guy as I am, as much as I love my Red Sox, I think I will always carry a much fonder feeling for minor league ball. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you, man. All right. I think that's it. That is definitely it. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings, including about our trip to Australia, by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew is on the Homebrewing subreddit, as well as the Slack Homebrew channel. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, mainly the AHA forum, where you can find me. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even rant and rave, you can email us at podcastedexperimentalbrew.com. And remember that Q&A show is coming up, so please send us your questions there. And you can email each one of us individually. I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.